You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, the Davidic Covenant, our first lesson of the Covenants Part 2 module, Philip Edwards will teach on the importance of the David Covenant and how all the promises offered to the patriarchs and Israel is now offered to David's dynasty. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, look at the other ministries we have to offer and also partner with us. Also, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can do so by following us at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome everyone back after our uh, Christmas break and uh, start of a new year, 2022. We're going to be looking at the second half of the teaching on covenants. We did uh, four Uh, lessons before uh, Christmas and now we're going to do the four after. Uh, We'll just have a word of prayer before I start and then we'll uh, do a a recap on on what's gone before. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us and your desire to make truth clear to us. Uh, Father, we want to understand the scriptures. We want to understand more about you and uh, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our personal teacher, one to guide us into truth. So we now commit ourselves to you, our minds, our understanding, Lord, that you will reveal to us uh, truth from your word, that it might bless us, that we might glorify you in our lives. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. Covenants then, Uh, I'll just do a a brief recap on where we've got to uh, over the previous uh, four lessons and then we'll uh, finish uh, over the next four weeks. It's one of the longest modules I do because it is a fairly lengthy subject. It covers the whole of scripture actually and it's vital we understand it. I say vital we understand it because mostly our Christian life becomes all about us and our experience and our life and where we are and our testimony and and yet this this study causes us to step back as it were and to look at what God is doing uh, through uh, through thousands of years and what God is doing throughout the earth and throughout the world so this is a good place to come to to actually study this we are fallen But the world has fallen. The world is in a mess. It's been in a mess for a long time. It's been in a mess for thousands of years. But we see that God has a plan, a strategy to bring all things together. And we know that one day it'll be perfect. It'll be made perfect. So we're going to look at God's grand scheme. We're part of the grand scheme. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the people in the world, and this scheme is about us. This study brings us individually into into understanding the true perspective of the part that we play. We play a part. And it's interesting, as we study the scriptures, we, we see large stories and large pictures, but of course it all boils down to us as individuals. We can identify with uh, these, these stories, with these people that we read about. Right there, 
at the fall, at the beginning, because that's where it starts. Uh, the Bible starts with uh, the fall of Adam's race, as it were, and then we know that through the scriptures, God is putting it all back together again. We see the Almighty One there. He isn't just one step ahead of man, putting it right, but he's in eternity ahead of man. God's worked it all out from the beginning, as it were. He knows exactly where it's going. Everything is on track. I, I, I can't fathom that myself because we're making decisions every day and making foolish ones and silly ones and wrong ones and, and so are great world leaders making wrong decisions. And somehow it all moves along where God wants it to be. He's never uh, surprised or what do I do next? He's, he's worked it all out for us. And see, as, as we step back, we've got to think about things like this a little bit. Think about the grander picture and how God sees things. So he has had a redemptive plan that's been working out for thousands of years, literally 4,000 years before Christ came, and then another 2,006, from generation to generation, God has been working out this plan of redemption for the world. And as we read through the scriptures, we see certain key figures who were, who were determined to have a relationship with God. The vast majority of people didn't. And even today, the vast majority of people either don't know they can have a relationship with God or they don't particularly want one. They want to govern their own lives. They want to rule their own lives. But we see as we read through the scriptures, these key people who wanted this relationship. And so God works with them to bring about covenant. It seems as though God has got to involve himself with us. He just can't come along and dictate what happens in the world as though we didn't have a part to play. He has to come and approach mankind and work with him and almost get permission. I don't think that's the right word, but you understand what I'm saying, like work with him, get his willingness to, to come and to work with him. Adam and Eve had a covenant relationship. The Bible doesn't call it a covenant relationship, but when we look at it, we see that's what it was. Uh, this, because the covenant relationship is the highest relationship of all. It's higher than a blood relationship. It, it's a covenant that's bonded in love. We see the, the, the term covenant first was used with the man Noah. I was just imagining how God actually worked with Noah. He said, he, it, it gives the impression he looked throughout the earth and he spoke to people in the earth, but no one was interested. No one responded to him. No one was interested in God or wanted to put faith in this God that was speaking to them, apart from one man. It's incredible to, to think that of the thousands of people that were around. One person, Noah, responds to the voice or the word of God and he, he believes God is speaking and he believes God is asking him to do something. And of course, the word of God says he found favour. Now, some people would teach that man had no part in this. Uh, Noah was ignorant like everyone else and somehow God moved upon him and made him do the things that he did. I, I don't believe that myself. I believe that we have the ability to choose 
what we want to do. We can respond. God speaks to us. God speaks to us from his word. It's up to us whether we respond or we don't respond. So I believe that Noah responded. And with Noah, of course, he makes a covenant. He floods the earth, he destroys mankind, but he keeps Noah and his family, and he makes a promise, and he says, I won't do this again. We will work this out. I will work out what I'm doing in the earth to produce what I want to produce. As we move along in history, perhaps another uh, 500 to 1,000 years, we see Abraham appear on the scene. Abraham, the one that we call the father of our faith. He is called a friend of God. Another man who, who wants a relationship with God. Prior to God speaking to him, he, he would have been an honourable man, a man of dignity perhaps, but of course, unless God speaks, we can't have a relationship with him. That was your experience. You couldn't have a relationship with God and, until he spoke to you and presented himself to you. And so it was the same with Abraham. God speaks to him and Abraham responds to God. He does everything that God asks him to do. Is part of the plan of God's restoration. Abraham, uh, in time, the children that he has, it develops into a nation. Millions of people, and we know the story of their captivity and everything, but they were descendants of Abraham. They were his, his offspring, his, his children. And then we see that there is another covenant that's drawn up, this time between a man called Moses. God is wanting to enter into now not a covenant with a man, but with not a man and his family, should I say, he wants to enter into a covenant with a nation. And so he takes this, this, this family and he, he enters into a covenant with them. And of course the person he uses to, to draw up the covenant is Moses. And it's called, that's what it's called, it's called Moses' covenant with God. We see in this covenant that God makes with Moses that God gives Moses laws. <laughs> we don't like laws. We don't like being obedient. It's funny, obedience is like a dirty word, isn't it? Well, there's nothing bad about obedience. Obedience is a good word. To be obedient is to be good, but it, with the fallen nature, it's a bad thing. See, it says of Jesus, he had to learn obedience. Now we're thinking, oh, was he disobedient then? Oh, no, no. See, we always think about it in a negative term. When Jesus learned obedience, it was a positive thing. He saw what his father wanted as he was growing up, and he willingly did it. He made himself obedient to it. He wasn't falling, uh, fighting against a fallen nature. It was a good thing. As Christians, we've got to learn that obedience is good. It's not bad. It's a good thing. So we find that God gives the law the ideal way of living with God. God says, this is what I'm like, and it's best if you can live in a way that we agree. And if you live in that way, we're going to get on really fine. That's true of everything, isn't it? Unless two walk together, it's just going to be friction all the time. So God says, this is the way you should think and act and live. And what course, they couldn't do it. People couldn't do it. But God knew that. He wasn't surprised by the fact they couldn't keep the law. He knew that they couldn't keep the law. 
but he, he was going to do, thing, do something about this. In the fullness of time, God would do something with people that they could keep the law. They could walk in the way that God had called them to walk. We know that this takes place in his final covenant, which we call the new covenant, which is the New Testament, which we have. So, but I don't want to jump the gun here. I've got to deal with the covenant that comes between the covenant he struck with Moses and the one he struck with the church through Jesus Christ, which was the Davidic covenant. That's where we're going tonight. We're going to look at the covenant that he struck with David. He drew up a covenant with David that he would establish a royal dynasty. That was the plan. And from David, there would be a line of kings and eventually the Messiah would come from this line. That was the purpose of it. Through this dynasty, God would establish an everlasting kingdom. We call this the kingdom of God. We're already living in the kingdom of God. Sometimes there's a theological argument on this. Does the kingdom only come when the king returns and sits on the throne and that's his kingdom? Or has the kingdom started already? It's like the kingdom is here, but not quite yet, because the king isn't here. But the rule of his kingdom is here. We've invited the king to come and take up rulership in our heart. And when we say, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what we're praying is saying, Lord, come and be the king in my life. And if you're the king in my life, then all around me is the kingdom of God. You come near me and you will experience the kingdom of God. You will experience love and grace and forgiveness and peace and compassion. That's true for all Christians, isn't it? Well, maybe, maybe not, okay. But the idea is that we have kingdom rule within us and so the kingdom is expressed around us in our lives. Churches should be really beautiful places, shouldn't they? where people are constantly expressing the kingdom of God because the king rules and reigns in their heart. Churches are like a a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of the life to come. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, of course, you know I do. When Christ's son came the first time, the purpose of him coming was to bring the kingdom, but to make it possible for there to be subjects of the kingdom. And so he came and he died and rose again. And through that death and resurrection, he he instituted this new covenant. We're building towards the new covenant. Next week should be very exciting because we're on to the new covenant. On his second visit, when Christ comes, this is a futuristic event, he comes as the last in the line of this uh, uh, royal dynasty that David has started. Over 3,000 years ago now, David started that royal dynasty of which Christ stepped into. 
just a thousand, two thousand years ago. So in our study today, we'll explore the wisdom and the working of God who 1,000 years before Christ, the son of David, came into this earth, a throne was established for him. That one day Christ would return and take up his seat on the throne. That's what we're looking at tonight. A throne for the king of the whole world. It's an important covenant, you see. It wouldn't be good enough just to have the other ones. We have to have a covenant where a seat is prepared for the king of kings to come and be established as the king of the whole world. The Davidic covenant, then. We can get started this evening. As I was saying there in the introduction, why do we need this Davidic covenant? Well, we see first God makes a covenant with a man that is extended to his family. The family becomes a nation, and then God makes a covenant with a nation, and from the nation comes a king. And then God makes a covenant with a king whose descendant will conquer the whole world. You see the overall picture. God starts with a man that develops into a nation that develops into the whole world. God isn't content with Israel. Uh, I thank God for Israel and everything that Israel has. But we don't stop at Israel. Israel is a stepping stone to God being the king of the whole world. He's interested in every human being that was ever created, made. He's loved everything that he's ever made. He loves his creation. And so the king will be the king of the whole creation. And we're part of that. We're part of that immense, fantastic story. And we are subjects of the king. Don't you feel privileged to be part of the whole story? when there are millions that ignore it. Even though they hear the story, they don't embrace it, but for some reason you have and you're here and you're part of that eternal, immense, vast story. You're part of it. And just as those people I've spoken about, they were passionate about God, whether we're talking about Abraham or Moses or David, we read about them, they were friends of God, they were, they were passionate about God. It says of David, he was a man after God's own heart. Isn't that you? Aren't these stories about you? You're passionate about your God. You're in a covenant relationship with him. He's called you his friend. It's not just Moses and Abraham that is the friend of God, but God said through Jesus Christ, I once called you my servants, but now I've made everything known to you. There are no secrets now. You are my friend. We're friends of God. We need to see step back sometimes and look at the whole picture. When we're all here fussing with all our problems and our difficulties and, and all this, I understand we've got to do that and we get lost in it all. We need to step back sometimes and think, whoa, this is part of something 
enormous and wonderful and great that God is doing. The covenant then that God made with David. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 17, and 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. The word again, a covenant, doesn't appear in those scriptures, although if you read them, and we won't go through uh, reading them all, we're going to look at one or two other verses of scripture here, you would say, oh, this is a covenant. He's drawing up a covenant. I see what it is. We're going to turn to Psalm 89, where God describes his covenant with David. This is Psalm 89, and we're going to look at verses 26 to 29, and then 33 to 35. This is the Almighty speaking. This is what he says in uh, verse 26. He, God speaking now, he, David, will call out to me, he says. And what will David call? You are my Father, my God, the Rock, and my Saviour. That's what David cries out to God. And this is what God says in response. He says, I will also appoint him my firstborn. Now, isn't that interesting? Where have we heard this before? See, when he comes to Abraham, the promises he makes to Abraham are for his firstborn. And then when the nation, he makes a covenant with the nation, one of the names he gives to Israel is they are my firstborn. And now he's talking about David, King David, and he says, David is my firstborn. So in each of the covenants that we read about, God is approaching it the same way. It's, what, it's as though one massive covenant, but done in stages, and God is coming fresh to it again now with this new covenant with David. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my kindness to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. We can't help missing the word forever. Remember when God draws up a covenant, it is forever. It is forever. So the covenant that God made with Abraham is forever. The covenant that God made with Moses was forever. Now, in sometimes Jesus fulfilled part of the covenant things that had to be fulfilled, and so they, they stopped there. But many of the covenant things, they follow on through the cross into our lives. Could it be that we don't live in all the blessing of God because we don't keep the covenant? People like to think, oh, well, that was all the law and now we're living under grace and everything should be wonderful now. But it isn't, is it? Because the covenant that God drew up, it still follows through unless God has done something to say it doesn't need to follow through anymore. We're going to a lot more detail of that in a couple of weeks' time. This is what he says now in verses 33 of Psalm 89. He said that I will not take my love from him, nor will, I, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. Remember, God can only swear by himself. We have to swear by something that is higher than us. And he says, 
I swear by myself, my own holiness, I, I promise you. And I will not lie to David that his line will continue, we have the word again, it'll continue forever. And his throne endure before me like the sun, it will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. What he's saying, as long as there's a moon and there's a sun, uh, my word is established and will not fail. It will never it will always be true. If you don't believe me, just look and see if there's a, a sun in the sky and a moon at night and you'll know my words are eternal. Like God's covenant with Abraham, his covenant with David is an everlasting covenant. It's called, uh, in Isaiah, holy and sure blessings promised to David. Isaiah 55 and 3 says this, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. And in the book of Acts, this is reiterated for us, referring to Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He quotes that verse from Isaiah and he says, I will give you, talking about Jesus, the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So we discover and we find out that Jesus is of the line of David. And just as God says, listen, I promise you a king, uh, David, you will always be, a descendant of yours will always be on the throne. I promise you that. If there's sun in the sky at day and there's moon at night, there will always be a descendant of yours on the throne. And today, is there one? Of course. And his name is? Jesus. So that promise is true. What does that mean to us? We're going to discover. The writer is making the point that Jesus, a descendant of David, whom God raised from the dead, so his covenant promise is still very much intact today. Jesus is alive. You could say, well, oh, for a brief period of time there, for three days and three nights, there was no king on the throne. Well, he was going to come back in three days, so we'll give God three days grace, shall we, on that one? Okay. David's last words, and if you go to 2 Samuel, it starts the chapter saying, these were the last words of David, and in verse 5 it says this, He has not made with me... Uh, sorry, he has not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part. Okay, let's now look at what the covenant promised. The promises of David centred on two features within his covenant. One was a royal dynasty. There would be a, a dynasty following on from David that would be always a king on the throne and it would be a kingdom that would last forever and forever and forever. We are part of a kingdom that will know no end. We will all sleep probably unless Christ comes before but we won't die will we? Jesus said that at the tomb of Lazarus. He said you won't die, you'll sleep. See, our condition has changed through faith in Christ. You say, well, Philip, is there a difference? Oh, there's a vast difference. Your eyes will close. 
and immediately they will wake as though you're waking from sleep in the presence of the Lord. Now, there's some uh, discussion about how and when and what happens in that time. Uh, I could go there, but I'm not going there because it only leads to more discussion and debate that was probably not fruitful for us at this time. Let's look at this royal dynasty that David talks about. David had proposed to build a house for God. Remember, he had built his palace and now he says, right, I'm going to build this house. He was the wealthiest king in the world at that time. I mean, Solomon only continued with the great wealth that David had amassed. He was the king of all kings then in the earth. He was so powerful and so rich. And he thought, I'll build a temple for my God. Because he was told, no, you won't. The prophet said, God doesn't want you to do that. Your son will do that. The task is not for you. But this is what he says to David in 2 Samuel 7.11. He said, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David had a house, a splendid house that he had built. God wasn't speaking of a residence for David. He was referring to a household, his family descendants. You will have descendants a house, a household, a, a royal dynasty will follow you. You are the greatest king in all the world. And you will always, or one of your descendants, will always be on the throne of the world. He was the king of Israel. But he was a great and powerful king. He could have been like the greatest king in the world. But he said, listen, you will have a dynasty and they will sit on the throne. And one day there will be a king who will be the king of the whole world. This is too much for David to cope with at this stage. We'll, we'll expand this a little bit later as we look at the scriptures. In 2 Samuel 7, 18 and 19, this is David speaking. See, he's shocked with what God has told him. He thinks, is this possible? I know I'm a king now, but they were so used to kings being toppled and then another king coming. They had seen great empires, you know, with the Syrians and then the Babylonians were going to come and these nations. And yet he says to David, no, you will be a king and your dynasty will be the greatest dynasty and they will end up being the king of the whole world. He says this, 2 Samuel 7, 18 and 19. He says, who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, You've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. I don't believe it. This shepherd boy is going to be the greatest king in the world and his dynasty will rule the whole world. This is a new addition to the thing that we call the promise. Remember what the promise was. 
It was the promise that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. The fall had happened. Satan had come in. He had mastered the situation. And so God speaks and he said, from your seed, meaning the woman's seed, Eve might have thought it was her, her seed that would have conquered the enemy, but he was speaking of Jesus, Mary's seed in the future to come. From you, your seed, one will come who will deal with the devil. That was the promise. And when he's dealt with, all will be gathered in. We will, we will deal with him and we will win everything back. That's the promise that God makes. It meant that all that had been offered to the patriarchs and Israel in the previous covenants was now being offered to David's dynasty. All of the promises that were made to Abraham and all of the promises that were made to the nation of Israel, he is saying, now I am, I'm adding another covenant to this where it starts with you, David, and you become the heir of these promises and your royal dynasty after you. A succession of rulers from his family the promise of God, the covenant promise of God would travel now through the kings, starting at David and travelling through. David would have revered Abraham. And now he would have revered Moses. I mean, Moses was super, wasn't he? I mean, Moses was the greatest. But he's saying, listen, the promises I made to Abraham and the promises I made to Moses, I now make them to you, David, and to the kings that come from you. The line of, of promise, as it were, travels now through you and your royal dynasty. David, I'm raising you up on par with Abraham and Moses. Whoa! I mean, it's something else. You see, but we must identify ourselves with these things because he says, I now call you a friend and I raise you up so you become a co-heir with Christ. I say, you're not talking about me, Philip, you're talking about someone else. You're talking about some wonderful great saint. You're not talking about me. Yeah. See, David thought that. He says, surely not, God. I'm just a shepherd boy. And you might say, I'm a co-heir with Christ. Surely not. Yes, I'll raise you to that position. What God has planned for us, we would not be able to comprehend it. What, is, what he's prepared for us even now, we're not enjoying as much as it, that we should. We're being cheated and deceived and we're, we're allowing our minds to be taken everywhere else so we don't fully embrace all that God has got for us. And it's a struggle sometimes just to lay hold of these things. But God says, keep pushing forward. Keep, keep moving forward. It's a struggle, I understand now. But there will be a breakthrough when the King of Kings comes. 
and then you'll enter fully into all that was prepared for you. The blessings that were given to the king, as in all kingdoms, they're shared shared by the, the subjects of the king. That's a good king. If he's rich, his nation is rich. He's not hoarding it and grabbing it for himself and keeping people down. The blessings that come to the king, they come to the nation. The blessings that come to God, they come to us. We don't have to wrestle blessings from God. By faith, we receive them from him because he is our king. In our case, of course, Jesus is our sovereign and we receive as subjects the blessings that come. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. One, it was a royal dynasty and now it's an, an everlasting kingdom. One of the promises that were made to Abraham, let me remind you, it says in Genesis 17 and 6, he says, I will make you fruitful, he says to Abraham, and I will make nations of you. <laughs> what are the nations he will make? He made one nation, which was the nation of Israel. No, it says here, he'll make nations. So when God was speaking to Abraham, he knew there would be a nation, but he was looking beyond he was looking to David and beyond David when there would be nations. The nations of this world will all be subject to the Lord. I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. He thought, well, there can only be one king, uh, the king of one nation. No, God said that the kings of the nations will come to you, Abraham. God is expanding his covenant from one nation to the world. Jesus is the king of kings the king of all the other kings. He will be king of the whole world. One item of the covenant with Israel was, God said there would be a kingdom. In Exodus 19.6, it says, you will be for me, talking to Abraham, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people who live in the kingdom of God, we are a kingdom of priests. We, we are priests of the king, the king of kings. We take his message and we bring others to the king. We represent the king to the people. That's our responsibility. We know that God wanted Israel to be a people that would take the message of God to the world. He called them, didn't he, up Mount Sinai and said, come, come up the mountain. And they said, no, we're frightened. Well, they couldn't be that nation then. But we are. 
we are royal priests. There is no priesthood in the New Testament, did you realise? We shouldn't have priests in churches. I understand their role as leaders. I just wish they hadn't used the term priest, that's all. I haven't got a problem with the people leading churches, but let's call them pastors or elders or whatever the Bible chooses. But don't call them priests because we have one high priest and his name is Jesus and we are all priests. We are a royal priesthood. Now, I'm not opposed to people leading churches, don't get me wrong, but I am opposed to them being called priests, that's all. That's just a little problem I have. Because the Bible doesn't call them priests. It gives them another name, and we're best off use the name the Bible uses, and then there's no confusion with people. In 2 Samuel 7 and 16, the kingdom that was assigned to David was a perpetual kingdom, a kingdom without end. It would never end, this kingdom that I'm giving you, David. It says, your household and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, he says. And in Jeremiah 33, 17 and 20 and 21, he says, for this is what the Lord said, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, we get the sun and the moon again coming into this one, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant on the reign of his throne. Well, as long as I've lived, there's been day and night. I haven't seen that broken yet, but I don't think we ever will. When David realised the magnitude of what had been given to him, he was overwhelmed with it. I read to you a verse just a minute ago from 2 Samuel 7, 18 and 19, and I read it to you from the NIV. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it, it, just, it just does it better. He said this, he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? that thou hast brought me this far. Remember, we read that in the NIV. Who am I that you've brought me this far? And yet, this was significant in thine eyes. Another way of saying this, and as if it were not enough in your sight. You brought me this far, God, but it didn't seem to be enough for you that you made me the greatest king in the world at this time. And he goes on to say, O Lord God, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. And then he goes on, this is the character for humanity. You go, I don't understand that. Well, I didn't. You have to do some digging around sometimes to try and work out what some of this stuff is. It's saying, is this the usual way that you deal with man? Let me read that last sentence again. For thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. This is the character for humanity. The ancient promise of God to Abraham regarding a universal blessing would continue. Only now it would involve a king 
and a kingdom. This kingdom and the blessing of the kingdom would also bring within its scope the future of all mankind. God wasn't just thinking of David and David's dynasty. He was starting something with David that will encompass the whole world. I'm told today of the uh, seven billion people in the world, two and a half billion of us are believers in Christ. To some degree or others, I understand that. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. It, it's increasing and increasing. David saw that the scope of his kingdom would be the whole world. That's why he was overwhelmed. David, the shepherd boy, is now king, and his line will be the king of the whole world. And no wonder he was overwhelmed. Philip, this uh, simple boy that stands before you, uh, grown up in a family of um, working class, not poor, but working class people, will be a co-heir with Jesus Christ in the world. I'm just practicing now. <laughs> I'm just getting ready for it, you understand? I'm seeing, I'm seeing the potential and I'm boldly living up to it. You see, it takes boldness. It takes boldness to live in the kingdom with God. It takes faith and boldness. The boldness of Moses, the boldness of Abraham, the boldness of David. Once God has declared something, you are a co-heir with Christ. I come to establish my kingdom. We pray, thy kingdom come. We can be bold. Bold. We lay hands on the sick and we say, oh, please, God, do something for this poor sick person. I'm sorry, that's not very bold. Now, don't go too far and be arrogant. I understand that. But be bold. Co-heirs with Christ. Pressing forward to establish the kingdom of God in the world. You see, you have to see the big picture. We can get lost in our trouble and our problem and everything that's bearing down in us. We can get lost in it. We need to see the big picture. So we step, we step forward. Sometimes it's just a question of shaking off this stuff and pressing in to all that God has for us. We'll take a break there. In this second half, we're going to uh, look at the change that took place in David. Uh, once he realised what was happening to him, uh, he started to, as it were, build uh, in Jerusalem this kingdom that God was talking about. The first thing we see that he does, he brings the ark uh, back 
into Jerusalem. The ark represents the power of God and the presence of God. And we read there in 2 Samuel 6 the account of where he goes to Abinadab's house and he brings the ark back. And of course, there's all the trouble with someone touching the ark and he's done it all wrong and he has to go back to the Lord. Uh, and then they get it right and, and they bring the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem to, to establish it there. He knows that God wants to establish this royal dynasty from Jerusalem. And so the whole way of thinking starts to change. He starts to establish the kingdom of God in that place. It says in Psalm uh, 132, 13 and 14, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. He, he gets this. Uh, David understands this. And from this moment onwards, the people of God saw, uh, as it were, the king of Israel would become the king of the whole world. The prophets start to speak about this as well in, in, in what they're saying. This is the beginning of the insight that absorbed them, the idea that there would be a king for the whole world. The coming of the kingdom of God and the Messiah, the son of David, who would reign over the whole earth. Micah, just one verse we'll pull from Micah, Micah 5 and 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. When he's talking about Israel here, he's talking about all of God's people. They had this vision that Jews and Gentiles would all be drawn in and that the king from Jerusalem would be the king of the whole world, who reigns, whose origins are from old, from ancient of times, he says. Even when the Davidic house or the dynasty was in tatters, remember when he brings the ark back, he doesn't bring it back to anything. There's just a platform and just tent, a rough old tent. You get the idea that it just was, what's going on here? The, the, Jerusalem, as it were, there was no temple there. There was nothing. And yet he brings it and he establishes it as a place of continual worship before the Lord. He knows, he, he, he has an understanding that the kingdom starts here to be a kingdom for the whole world. Now, merely a tent, it would rise from the ashes under a new coming David and would extend its authority to the Gentile nations. We're moving towards the new covenant. We've still got a thousand years to go. Well, we've got seven days to go because uh, we'll be in the new covenant next week. But from David thinking, because we never know about the timing of God. I'm sure he thought maybe one or two generations and things will have come into place. And of course we say that, don't we? When's Jesus coming? When's he coming? Uh, can't he come quicker? We know that the early Christians, they said, oh, you said he was coming, look, he's not coming, because they thought it was imminent. And we're always looking for his coming. 
Are we looking for his coming? We want to see an end to this mess here. And we want Jesus to be established on his throne and we want heaven. But we haven't got to wait and wait because we've only got our three score year and ten, haven't we? So in a way, that's a blessed release, isn't it? Oh, here he goes again. He's talking about death. Sorry about that. But it is, it is a blessed release to think we, if we had to hang around and wait for these thousands of years to Jesus come. No, I don't think so. But he'll come soon enough. He'll come soon enough. James, the leader of the assembly at Jerusalem, he wrote about this, didn't he? When he wrote about the tent, remember? It's in Acts 15, 16 and 17. Uh, after this... I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. This is God speaking. I will rebuild, he says. Uh, I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name say the Lord who does these things. That's what he, he was prophesying that same verse that is, is from Amos, actually. It's Amos 9. It says this, And in that day I will restore David's fallen tent, and I will restore its broken places, I will restore its ruins, and I will build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. It is the Lord who will do that. God will extend the kingdom throughout the whole earth into every nation, every people group. They will hear about the king. The future Davidic kingdom is addressed as God in scripture. Let me read a few of these verses to you. In Psalm 45, 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, this is the future king of the world, he says, your throne, O God. So Jesus, who is the Messianic king, is referred to as God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your love, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. These verses speak of the kingdom that will be established throughout the whole world, a kingdom that we will enjoy living in. I don't want to go to heaven. don't want to go there. I want to live here. I want to live here with my new resurrection body, with Jesus Christ as the king of the world. I want Jesus to have the world that God always wanted him to have, a physical, tangible world. I don't know how it'll work. I have no idea, and it hasn't entered into the minds of man what it will be. But it will be real, and it will be physical, and it will be tangible, and we will laugh, and we will embrace one another, and we will we will be sinless and painless and death will have been swallowed up. Oh, we need to keep ourselves alive with this hope, excited about the future, looking to the future when this everlasting kingdom has been set up with Christ as the king. Hebrews 1.8 says something similar. 
But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, talking about the throne as being God, Jesus, the Messiah being the God, your throne, O God, will last forever and forever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. All we will know is righteousness. Isaiah 9 and 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, the future king of the world, I'm trying to rescue this from Christmas. Do you understand? Uh, some, some passages of Scripture, some stories of Scripture, they've been hijacked. You can't think of Jonah and the whale without thinking of a children's story. It's not a children's story. It's, it's Scripture. It's a powerful story about a wicked, wicked prophet, really. That's what it's about. And it shows us what we're like in our hearts because we're all, all like Jonah. But somehow the children have captured this thing and it's been conveyed to us in that medium and we've lost it. And, and Christmas has hijacked this one as well, along with some other verses it's hijacked. So I don't want you to think about Christmas or a Christmas card now when I read this to you. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When you're living in that kingdom in the future, that was, that's what you will say about your king. I'm not political, but we don't say many complimentary things about our leaders now, do we? We mock them and we ridicule them and people do all the time and they're always making mistakes and slipping. But that's not going to be the case. He is going to be a wonderful counsellor. When he, in that, in that kingdom to come, when Jesus speaks, it will just be so wonderful to hear what he has to say. He will be the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. Wow, yes. The fulfillment of the covenant with David, it came with the birth of Jesus. Remember what Angel Gabriel said. Again, let's rescue this verse, can we, as well, from Christmas? This is Luke 1, 31 to 33 and then 35. It says, he said to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob is another name for Israel, is another name for God's covenant children, is another name for you. We are the Israel of God, the Jacob of God, the people of God. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, the Son of Mary, he's called there. He's called the Son of David. He's called the Son of the Most High. He is called the Son of God. He will be on David's 
throne. Throughout the Gospels, we constantly read over a dozen times, he is the son of David, the son of David. In Matthew uh, 1 and 1, when we read of the genealogy, it says he is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, establishing his identity as the Abrahamic, Davidic Messiah, the legal heir of David's throne. In Revelation 5 and 5, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. In Revelation 22 and 16, he is the root of the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. In Revelation 3 and 7, it says, he holds the key of David. That is the authority of the Davidic kingdom, which is the authority to prevail against the kingdom of Satan. He holds those keys now. He holds them now. So when he says, I give you authority to trample on things and to keep them under your feet, he is speaking as a king to you now. He is saying, you go forward now in the kingdom of God with this authority. And of course, he reminds them in Luke 10 and 18 and 19. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? I believe there was a rebellion led by Satan himself to attack the very throne of God. And he said, as he, as he went to attack, because the son was with the father, he said, I saw him fall. I saw him fall to the earth. He was never to come again into the presence of God like that. He fell into the earth. I saw him fall. And he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. We are subjects of the king. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet. But we, we live as though it were here now. We must start exercising that authority now. When he comes, it will be more difficult to exercise authority when he comes because there'll be no opposition. We must have the opposition to exercise authority over. When he comes, in a sense, we won't need the power of God. We will keep growing, I believe, in heaven. When we see him, it says we will be like him. We will be like him in bodily form. We will have transformed bodies, but we still have opportunity to grow into the character of Christ, even in the world to come. We will grow up in him in the future. Christ came as the Messiah. He came as the anointed king to bring the kingdom of God to the earth now. He will come a second time to consummate that kingdom. We have just this short space of time to grow spiritually strong in the face of opposition. We must grow strong. And it isn't about being dynamic and powerful. It's about being gentle and loving and meek and kind. 
some people defend the gospel through argument. I've never won a Christian argument in my life. It's not possible. Even if I was right and they were wrong, I lost. I lost. You see, because I lost them. I missed the whole point. It's through kindness. It's through compassion that we win any Christian argument. To win people to Christ, we don't beat them into the kingdom. We love them into the kingdom. We exercise kindness and compassion and mercy. For the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and gentleness, kindness, faithfulness and self-control. Love never fails. It never fails. Oh, that we would learn this. I want to turn, finally, to a couple of verses in Daniel. Speaking of Jesus, who is going to be the future king of the world, it says this in Daniel 2, 34 and 35. Watching a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Look at that picture. These great kingdoms, these great empires of gold, and um, the Babylonian one was that one of gold, wasn't it? And iron and just smashed to pieces and the wind as we see the kingdom of God coming to take its place. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. He saw that you see. Daniel saw it. He saw, he saw the kingdom of God filling the earth. I don't know if he got it. See, they were so limited to seeing themselves, perhaps as a nation, but the prophet said, no, this nation somehow filled the whole earth, and the king of this nation was the king of the whole world. He explains it a couple of verses down in Daniel 2 and 44. It says, in that time, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it ever be left to, an, to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. This kingdom will be a kingdom forever and forever and forever.
But before the king can come, God has to accomplish another covenant. And so when Jesus comes, he establishes the covenant with the people of God, the Israel of God. He makes it possible for us to live the ideal, for us to live in relationship with God, for us to be the friend of God. He makes this possible. And then he invites us in to this relationship with him. And then he empowers us with the Holy Spirit to live this way. And then the king comes for his people. That's the new covenant. That's next week. God bless you all. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come back next week for our second lesson of the Covenants Part 2 module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, please head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can give a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.